We often talk about the hope that one day artificial intelligence will make our lives and the lives of our loved ones safer. But all too often, it can feel like something for the future. But today's guest is already building AI to help vulnerable people right now. Motivated by his own life experiences, George Natcher is pioneering AI technology to help the elderly and others with dementia be safer in their homes. Safely use artificial intelligence-enabled vision systems are raising the profile of technology solutions in the fight against dementia. While still a young company, Safely U has successfully reduced falls by 40% and ER visits resulting from falls by 80%. Welcome to the show, George. We're so excited to have you here. Thanks for having me, Peter. Super excited to be here. Well, George, first time we met was, of course, in the Berkeley AI Research Lab while you're working on your PhD. Why did you get into doing an AI PhD and how did that lead you to starting this company? That must have been about seven years ago now. And Peter was just a young faculty at that time. <laughs> um, you could go back and look at my you know, graduate application essays from back then. And this was in 2014. So it was all about how can we use these new tools in AI? You know, we, everybody was seeing we passed this inflection point with AlexNet in 2012. And there has to be some way that we can use these tools to help my family. Um, it was really just about how do we help people with Alzheimer's disease? And I didn't realize how much of a weirdo I really was actually coming into a <laughs> computer science PhD program that I had such an application in mind that I really wanted to work specifically on, you know, leveraging the tools to help people with Alzheimer's. But the opportunity just seemed so clear um, that there has to be some way that we can give a voice, you know, to a population that loses the ability to advocate for themselves um, through through tools like this. So that was really the dream from the beginning. And like to say that I'm in year 20 of the 30-year plan, but it really still feels like just the beginning that there's there's so much good that we can do uh, going forward. Now, that's so interesting. A lot of people come to their PhD thinking about purely the technology, but here you are saying from day one, you already had a very specific, important application in mind that you thought your PhD will, doing the PhD would help you solve that problem. Is that right? Yeah, hundred percent. And that it felt like the way to push things forward was by, you know, deeply understanding what the, you know, latest and greatest is and doing something that didn't seem technically feasible and, you know, pushing, pushing the boundaries of how we could help instead of, you know, just repeating what was already out there or whatever else that there had to be a way to leverage these new tools to really do a lot of good for folks. Then obviously given so much of the power of these tools comes from the data you have. Um, it became a bit of a journey of, oh man, you have to be really crazy to approach a problem like this where data is so hard to get and it's so, you know, it's so important, but so private and personal and, and all of that, that, you know, sitting next to the folks that were working on cafe in the early days and things like that, um, that I was the crazy one that wanted to go spend all my time with old people and <laughs> see if I could, you know, find ways to support them. Now, dementia, can you say a bit more about how many people are affected by it and how does it manifest itself? Yeah, definitely. And this is stuff I really didn't know. I was just, you know, wanting to you know, help my own family and saw how challenging it was. Um, so in my family, for reference, my mom's mom had it and has now passed. And then my mom's big sister has it and is now late stage. And then my mom is basically the next one in line. So 
saw how challenging it was for her, but also it felt very kind of inevitable that mom is the next one. And so really the goal is how do we build what I want for my own mom before she gets to that point? And when we were first starting, it felt like it was maybe 10 years away. Now it feels like it's maybe five years away. So definitely feel that kind of sense of urgency. Um, but I didn't realize how big the problem really was until I started, you know, applying for funds and, you know, grant applications and things like that to support the research. And it turns out that it's the single most expensive disease in this country. So Alzheimer's disease is one form of dementia. It represents about two thirds of all dementias. Alzheimer's and related dementias are the single most expensive disease in the country. It's one in five Medicare dollars. It's one in three people over 85 and one in nine people over 65, which just does not feel old to me, you know, like, you know, my parents are over 65 and so many others, you know, it's hard. There's two of us on this call, <laughs> you know, there's a pretty good chance one of us is going to have, you know, brain deteriorative, you know, deteriorating brain damage. And it's a really hard thing to deal with for both the individual, of course, but also their families and requires a lot of support. And I think one of the things that makes the disease so tough is that it doesn't kill you. Folks with Alzheimer's will live with it for five to 20 years. Um, and during that time, you know, they're going to progressively lose their memory. And so, you know, people know about things like, well, forget the people around them and things like that. But you also lose the ability to do anything on your own. You know, you lose the ability to eat on your own, get yourself dressed and things like that. So you get to the point where you need 24 seven support and it's really hard. It's really hard work. Um, and as the population is aging, we're now at a point where there are more people over 65 than under five for the first time in human history. And we just do not have good solutions. Um, so yeah, very eager to help my own family, but also there's so many more who, who really need us and will just become an increasing challenge for our society on the same level as climate change and things like that, problems that we have to solve or they will just increasingly make it really hard for our society to do anything else. It's such a, a big challenge, of course, also. It's a big open problem. I gotta imagine you are, at the time, still an undergraduate student thinking about what you want to do with your life and you you take this as your mission to improve our ability to care for people with dementia ideally solve dementia of course how do you even get started what how do you say well this is the part of the puzzle that i can maybe make some progress on and it's an important part of that puzzle yeah one step at a time <laughs> you know i think we in popular culture love to think of startups as like I don't know, you see Elon Musk, Tesla, and it's like, wow, what a great idea, whatever else. How did you come up with that? And it's so, at least for me, it was not like the sudden burst of insights or whatever. It was a very iterative going and talking to a lot of people, exploring different ideas, thinking about what's the biggest risk to prevent this from working and kind of just taking it one day at a time and being patient and, you know, seeing when you're really getting that jaw-dropping reaction from folks. And so when I was a undergrad, to kind of go back to your question, so both my parents are immigrants from South Africa and both are physicians and, you know, worked really hard to get to this country and find great fulfillment from, you know, doing good for people. And I think that's really kind of core in the DNA that I really wanted to, you know, do something that made the world better. And I thought I was going to go be a doctor, but then you fall in love with engineering. I think so many of us have like, it's really fun and you see the opportunity to help so many more people. You know, instead of just helping the person right in front of me, 
I can build something and that work can help so many others. I think so many engineers come to that conclusion. And so then applied to grad school with really just that idea of I want to somehow combine these new tools in AI and this population I care a lot about. And I don't know how, but there's got to be some some way we can support. And so this, what became Safely You was actually, we worked on several projects while at Berkeley exploring lots of different ideas. Um, and then we were doing this work kind of off campus and we saw the eyes really lighting up of this is something we're going to solve a problem today for folks. And there's sure all sorts of you know risks associated that we think we're going to be able to figure out as, as the company grows. But here's a way that we can both help right now today with the kind of sense of urgency I feel about my own family, but also, oh crap, once those, you know, once the system is in people's rooms, there's only going to be more and more that we can do from that, from the data and from the population to see a trajectory for, you know, not just solving really hard issues today, but actually really solving in a systemic way some of the challenges that we are already facing and will continue to face as a society. Now, let's say somebody gets a safely used system installed in their home. What does that mean for the life of the patient? What does it do for them? Yeah, so basically what the what Safely You is, is kind of like the product today. And we put cameras in, in people's rooms um, if they choose to have them. And then we detect if somebody has had a fall. And then we only keep that video, which is really the key point. So the goal is to give a voice to somebody that can't necessarily advocate for themselves. So what we do is we detect if somebody's gone to the ground, we only keep that video we do it with super high accuracy because we have the, the largest ever data set that's you know, ever been collected in this space. We only keep that video. We make that video immediately available. Where the big challenge is that these folks go to the ground and they can't necessarily get back up on their own and they can't tell us what happened. So that means that we have a lot of what we call unwitnessed falls. We find somebody on the floor. They could have hit their head. If you ask them, did you hit their head? They're going to say yes, <laughs> you know, either way. Um, and so you really don't know what happened. And so that means we have everything from there is based around, well, we have to keep this person safe and we don't know what happened. So we have to assume the worst. That means often we're sending folks to the emergency room because they could have hit their head and we don't know. But it turns out that what we consistently see is about half the time, the person actually went to the ground intentionally. You know, somebody got on the ground to pray, for instance, and they didn't fall at all. But they can't get back up on their own. They can't tell you, you know, why they were on the floor. And they don't know if they hit their head or not. And so they're getting sent to the emergency room. And then that just perpetuates of in the emergency room, we don't know what happened. And so we have to make sure this person's safe. And so we're going to do a full workup. We don't know if they hit their head or hit their hip. So we're going to scan every part of the body. And if nothing comes back on that scans, well, they could still have a latent brain bleed that just hasn't shown up on the scans yet. So we're going to hold them overnight for observation. And then we're going to scan them again the next morning. And in kind of the best situations, this costs, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. And in the worst situations, we're exposing folks to COVID that are hyper vulnerable. And then we're sending them back and exposing other people. And we heard some really hard stories that actually happened in my own family as well. Of people sent to the emergency room during COVID and families can't go in with their loved ones, right? They're restricting it. And so you're sending somebody with Alzheimer's disease into an emergency room and the family is sitting outside in the parking lot. And they don't know if their loved one is having a brain bleed right now and can't, it isn't even being seen. Like they could be sitting in the corner of the emergency room and nobody knows they're there and they're, you know, having a brain bleed and families are sitting there thinking about worst case scenarios in the parking lot, you know, 20 feet away from their loved ones. And then 
you know, only find out two hours later, they've actually been sent to another hospital because that's the one with the neurocenter or whatever else. And you're just, yeah. So the, I think, no, detect the fall so we can respond right away, be able to see how it happened right away for a population that can't advocate for themselves. And then the third big piece is we provide expertise. So we have experts on our team. They're often occupational therapists that review every video and work with the families or the staff to identify how this person is going to the ground and what changes we can make to keep this person safer. So really what we've built is kind of this room, remote care model where the AI is there so that you don't need to be there all the time and the expertise is there remotely. So wherever you are, you can be providing exceptional care for your loved one. So there are these cameras that are set up in people's homes and then you have an AI system that is somehow monitoring these camera feeds. Can you say a bit more about what is that AI doing and, and how is it built? Yeah, happy to. At a high level, we're using basically deep convolutional neural networks. And our aim is to detect specific events of high importance. So really supervised learning techniques where the goal is to take video in and have a confidence score out. So we want to take a video in and know as the end result, how likely is it that this person is on the ground? And particularly in our problem, you know, when you think about error modes, we think about, you know, precision and recall or, you know, sensitivity and specificity. In our problem, we care a lot about never missing a fall. And so really what we're training is to be in this regime where we have almost always detect when a fall happens, even if it's at the expense of greater false alarms. And then a lot of our work from getting a very high, you know, highly sensitive algorithm was how do we reduce our false alarm rate so that we're not overburdening staff and things like that. There's a lot of challenges with alarm fatigue in the industry. So as of, let's see, we did an analysis at the end of Q2 of this year and as of the end of Q2, we were at, and we require our customers to report back to us. You know, we work with them through the whole, you know, human expertise side. We find out if we ever miss a fall. So we can track pretty accurately how well we're actually doing. And as of the end of Q2, we were detecting 99.3% of the events. So missing seven in a thousand, which we take yeah a lot of pride in and crazy situations, right? Like I think all of us, when you, you deploy models, you start to be amazed at how well they are actually working sometimes, which is like, oh, we only saw this person's legs sticking out from behind the bed and we still got it, <laughs> which feels pretty cool. Um, and then on, in terms of the alarm rate, we send out today one false alarm every two years from each camera, which feels just insane. That's where I am like extremely happy with where our, with our error rate is today. That's amazing. One false alarm every two years. I mean... Yeah. Because there's always the talk about if you send too many false alarms, people stop paying attention to the alarm. Once every two years, I don't think anybody will will uh, fail to pay attention. Yeah, that's right. A lot of hard work over a lot of time. Do you have a sense of how much data you collected in this process to build this kind of system? Yeah, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of terabytes at this point. It's hard to, I don't have kind of the specific math, but you know, cameras for a long time, what we required is that the cameras were recording all the time which is a hard ask from people. So we had pretty low opt-in rates and things like that until we could get up to the point where we had enough data that we could do things with high enough accuracy that we could start to have these kind of privacy protections in place for folks. And so, yeah, we spent a really long time in that mode. And I think we could only do it, you know, by virtue of the personal connection of, you know, hey, I was going to individual families and saying, hey, I want to put a camera in your room and it's going to record video all the time. 
But I think if we do that, I can build something for my own mom. And, you know, it might not help your loved one today, but it, it might help the people that come after you, give folks kind of an opportunity to give back. Um, and so it took a long time of, you know, we were on SBIR funded grants and things like that to run research studies with IRB approval. And there's big chasms to cross there. And if we were in it just for the money, whatever else, there are much easier businesses <laughs> to build. But yeah, when you recognize how sensitive that data is, I feel very fortunate to be where we are now. Now, we talked about the technology, but as I understand it, I mean, you really come from the mission. The technology is just a means to an end. And as I understand it, you augment the AI system with human care. Can you say a bit yeah. about how that works together? I think it's a really critical piece for, I don't know, I don't want to overgeneralize, but I would say in the, in the industry we support, it's a really critical piece um, because the problems are really hard and that AI solutions today can't really provide complete solutions, right? You know, as an example, having the human expertise of not just having the video available, but helping folks know what to do about it is a big part of the secret sauce. I mean, not so secret sauce, like being able to actually make meaningful change that, you know, if you think about say an assisted living provider, unfortunately detecting a fall and having their staff get there faster does not make them more money or save them money in any way. So there's no ROI for them. And so even if they might really want to do it because they know it'll make life better for folks, how do they pay for it? You know, and as we were running our research studies, FYI, one of the things we did was we had our cameras on without sending alerts out to the communities because we wanted to test how long are people actually on the ground normally without our system in place. And we did it all with IRB approval and families were, you know, consented and, and residents. And it turns out that basically their standard of care is that they'll check on residents usually every hour that are high risk. They'll come in and do rounds on them. Well, it, what we saw was that the average time someone was on the ground was 40 minutes after they've had a fall. And that's the average. Um, they can be on the ground for a lot longer than that. And it's really tough, but they can't like, they, even though they want to be able to move forward with solutions and things like that, it's such a tough industry. They're on such thin margins and things already that it's really hard for them to move forward with things unless they're really seeing ROI from it. And it turns out that there is really meaningful ROI from actually reducing the number of events. How do you have fewer falls? Um, how do you provide better care for people in ways that takes you know, a meaningful amount of work off the staff and things like that? And so that piece of having the human component to not just throw a technology at them, but really make sure that the technology is successful and find ways to, you know, I think many technology companies are very resistant to having that much of a human component because they want very high margins and things like that. So, you know, how do you find ways to have good margins and be a venture backable business and all of that, but still have a complete solution where I think a lot of AI systems or technology systems in general expect the end user to kind of close the gap for them. But in underserved industries and industries on thin margins and things like that, they don't have the staff to really kind of close that gap. And so it's really up to you if you want to make sure it's successful and you're really helping folks to go that extra mile with them. Kind of curious with everything you described, the ROI, I mean, you need some kind of ROI to be able to, to work on this, of course, because you need to be able to you know, pay people and, and so forth. And when you think about the ROI, it seems like there's a very big ROI from the perspective of what I think would often be the children of the patients, because they would see a higher quality 
of care. And is, is there yes. ever any interest from the children of the patients that say, well, this is so much better for my parents. If it yeah. costs more, that's fine. Or I'll save money from ER visits that we'd be doing otherwise, Think, things like that. Yeah. yeah, well put. And just one minor note, um, not to call you out, um, <laughs> but we don't love to use the word patient unless it's like somebody who's in a hospital setting or things like that. Um, so usually we say like people living with Alzheimer's or things like that. We don't like to be defined by, you know, if we're going to live with it for 20 years, I don't want to be a patient for 20 years. You know, I'm just George <laughs> and I happen to have Alzheimer's. Yeah. But then at the same time, I think your question is a really savvy and good one. And I think one that all entrepreneurs put first and foremost is we want to do a lot of good, but the only way this gets out to as many people is we want to help. It has to be financially sustainable, right? It has to make people more, if you're selling to enterprises, it has to make them more money, right? Or else they're not going to be able to buy it in a scalable way. They might be able to like do it as a nice to have, but for it to be a must have and become the standard of care, it has to drive the businesses forward. So you asked kind of specifically about the children. I think that's one of the, I think a lot of people have gotten stuck there. So a lot of companies going to support elder care, which by the way, I wish there were more of, there are not enough. We as a society don't love thinking about elder care. Um, but a lot of companies that have approached elder care have unfortunately kind of floundered and failed. And so, you know, a lot of VCs don't love this space and they've had stories that they thought would be successful and just didn't find the market traction that they hoped for. And a lot of those companies have gone and specifically tried to market to the adult child and have something that they can you know, pay for, for their families. The challenge that a lot of those companies have seen is the, the individual has to also really want it. Or you're going to buy like one of those pendants that, you know, or Apple watch or whatever, and you buy it for your loved one. And then they go throw it in a drawer because they don't like being spied on or, <laughs> you know, whatever else. So one of our things that we take great pride in is that, um, so most of our customers are living in facilities. So either assisted living or skilled nursing facilities. And in the rooms where it's offered, we get 90% opt in. We track it quarter over quarter of how many people are opting in for our system. And so that's, you know, the residents and families that are explicitly choosing, we want this system um, because it makes our own lives better. And so it's a really delicate balance to play that I think any, probably any company will tell you, but certainly any healthcare company will tell you is that the big challenge with any healthcare company is that the person who benefits from it, which in our case is that resident or the individual with Alzheimer's is different from the person who's paying for it, which might be the business or the family is different from the person who's making a decision about it, which might be like the senior executive within the company, or it might be that the health insurance is paying for it. And there's a totally different entity that's paying for it, whatever else. And one of the things I found really hard in trying to help folks with Alzheimer's is that every single one of these stakeholders has to say yes and like enthusiastically yes. Um, and if any one of them says no, then it's just not gonna happen. Like if the staff don't like using it, um, because it makes their jobs harder or whatever else, then it's just not going to get used. Even if it does a lot of good for the individual, even if it makes the business more money, if you don't have like UIs that are easy for staff to use and whatever else, and it just doesn't get used. And I, I guess particularly found that really hard in the early days. If I really was focused on how do I help my own mom? I really wanted to help the individual themselves. And then you start to understand it's really hard to help somebody who can't necessarily learn to use technology and whose needs change over time. So the technology that works for them today, two years from now, doesn't actually help them anymore. People have experimented with things like Google Glass to like, can I have whatever? And so you, then you start to think about the ecosystem and okay, how do I support their caregivers or, or things like that? Um, but it's very much one step at a time.
Now, one really interesting statistic to me is to, that you've already achieved 40% less falls thanks to uh, your, the safely used system. But then when I naively think about it, I just think like, okay, a camera is looking at a person. How does a camera looking at a person, maybe with an AI behind him, but still just looking, how does that prevent yeah. falls? Can you expand a bit on that? Yeah. So as we were talking about earlier, it's 100% that human expertise side of it. Um, and so I think kind of a big misconception in how falls happen is we think of every fall as being this very dramatic incident. It turns out that only about 5% of falls result in an injury of any kind. Um, and only about 1% result in a severe injury, so like a fracture or head injury. So the best practice today outside of our system is basically anytime somebody has a fall, do a root cause analysis. How did this person fall? What kinds of things can we change? Should we be revisiting their medications? Should they be on physical therapy? Should we have a nightlight in their room so they can see the path to the bathroom? And so for folks that are cognitively healthy, they can remember what happened and tell you what they need. And you know, if you or I, you know, stubbed our toe going to the bathroom at night, we would remember that and like, hopefully, you know, do something different the next time. These folks, unfortunately, have a very high rate of repeat falls because they don't necessarily learn from their previous falls and they're falling the same way over and over until they have that fall with injury. And so really what we've enabled is that same root cause analysis process, but for somebody that can't advocate for themselves. How do we give, give them a voice where they would want to be able to tell us how they fell? They wouldn't want us to be able to see if they were you know, changing in their room or whatever else. So now we can see, you know, when they had a fall and how it happened, and then we can provide expertise where our staff are helping with, you know, thousands of falls every month today and identify, oh, this person, you know, we can see that they're getting out of bed on their left side and they're forgetting that they have muscle weakness on their left side. So they're going to the ground when they're trying to get out of bed. If we just push the bed up against the wall and they have to get out of bed on the right side and we can kind of design environments where we can kind of learn for them and you're not going to prevent every fall, but you're going to, you know, understand. It's kind of like a debugging tool for falls, really, at the end of the day. How is this person falling? What kinds of things can we put in place to try to keep it from happening again? That's really interesting. Now, the technologist in me thinks that at some point that could even be, you know, an AI system, too, that has seen from many examples in the past what has been done to improve the care and yeah. then uh, say, oh, well, this room, I can already tell you ahead of time here are some weaknesses or this fall, I know how to prevent that. Uh, ha have you thought about that at all yet? Yeah, without a doubt, it'd be great insight, um, without a doubt. I think we're just scratching the surface of the whole, so kind of where we are stage-wise as a company. In May, we did our Series A, which was 20 million. And in September, um, we did our Series B just a few months later, which was an additional 40 million on top. And Obviously, that only comes if we're you know, growing really quickly as a business and, and helping a lot of folks. And so really where we are stage-wise is we've proven that there's a you know, scalable solution here, but we are just scratching the surface. And so we're applying a lot of those funds to work on exactly the types of things you're describing. And that's just one of you know, several things that people don't even, aren't even thinking about today because they don't seem technically feasible. Like fall detection is so clearly just the beginning of... You know, once we can get a camera in somebody's room and start detecting different types of events, um, there are so many ways that we can provide more and more support. And yeah, certainly we're collecting the way that our human experts work today. Their workflows are explicitly designed so that that data can be used to train algorithms with their expertise as labeled training data um, to provide you know more and more support. And for us, that's a big part of the mission is making it 
So in our mission statement, we want to push the boundaries of dementia care, make care better than it ever could be without us. But we also want to make it accessible to everybody. And so we see those things as how do we make it accessible to everybody and really bring down the cost um, so that, you know, wherever you are, because unfortunately, a lot of folks are on Medicaid and low income and don't have the support that we need today. How do we make it accessible to everybody? Well, using using the AI to take over more and more of the, the human expertise is a big piece of it. Now, George, you said Series A in May, Series B recently, same year as Series A. I mean, that seems to indicate yeah. that there's a, a lot of momentum in that your technology is being adopted in many, many places. Can, can you say a little bit about that? What, what's going on in terms of growth? Yeah. Um, whoop, whoop. And I think it's also a little bit of the, oh my God, the startup roller coaster of when COVID hit, we didn't know if we still had a business, right? So March, 2020, we actually had a term sheet for the Series A that was like weeks before that. And when COVID hit, our term sheet got pulled. Because we didn't know if there still would be a business here in a you know post-COVID world, and we're still not in a post-COVID world. Hopefully, we you know get there someday. Um, the so you know we went in a year from not knowing if this business even made sense anymore um, to some really rapid growth. And you know a lot of people might think, oh well, obviously this is a remote care solution. Like clearly that works in a COVID world to be able to you know support people without necessarily needing someone in a room and whatever else and we saw was basically our sales went flat in Q2 because folks were just in, focused on infection control and, and the needs there um, in, in Q2 of 2020. So we ended up doing about 4x growth that year. We would have straight up done about 8x growth if you kind of annualized, you know, left that, that chunk of the year out. Um, and so basically what we saw is the solution was driving a lot of good for folks. And then being able to keep folks out of the emergency room in a COVID world, just had all the more value. We don't want to get them exposed to COVID, but also the industry we serve, their budgets now, like they're in recession, right? Their revenues are down, their costs are up. They don't know if their businesses still make sense or what the long-term trajectory looks like. And so there were still a lot of questions and we basically set, you know, in 2020, these are our company goals. Um, we want to show that we can still close new customers. We want to show that we can still grow those customers. And if we hit these kind of key goals, then there's a business here that still makes a lot of sense and a lot of you know good we can do for folks. We came out of 2020 hitting that same hockey stick we had hit the year before. And so a big reason why we could raise as much as we did is that, you know, I think very few companies have to show the hockey stick twice. <laughs> but as a you know, VC, seeing it twice gives you a lot of confidence in it, right? That it's not just like a one-time thing, even through all sorts of challenges, this team is going to make this happen kind of no matter what. And so, yeah, really thrilled with the growth. And then, yeah, um, we've signed our first, I don't know how much I want to say here, signed our first eight-figure contract this year and things like that. that Congratulations. Um, yeah, thank you. One step at a time. Um, but yeah, it feels really good to be at a point where just so clearly so much of what we do makes sense on a lot of levels for a lot of different stakeholders. Um, and now it's just how can, we, how can we do more and more and help more and more folks. So I think my big ask is anybody listening, we are hiring in every role <laughs> like across the company so if you want to make the world better we want to hire you you know if you're a top caliber type of person and um, we hold a pretty high bar but everyone we look for we want them to be people that are interested in making a big positive impact particularly folks personally affected by alzheimer's um, so if you're any type of role you know if you're interested in ai you're interested in sales and marketing you're interested in just helping in whatever way maybe you're just a super type a person and you'd be great on the ops side to make sure that we're not dropping any balls 
we would love to meet you and appreciate the opportunity. Kind of curious when you look at the, the future of care for, for Alzheimer's, right? What are some of the things that you see in the near future and then the further future as opportunities, places where we can actually try to make progress and help the situation and hopefully solve it? How optimistic yeah. are you and, and what's, yeah, what are the opportunities? Yeah. So in terms of solving it, I mean, I think, so Alzheimer's dementia is one form of cognitive impairment and there's, a, there's even more folks with cognitive impairment, right? That have been in car accidents or, you know, veterans that, you know, have traumatic brain injury. So I don't really think in terms of like, how do we solve cognitive impairment as much as how do we just like keep chipping away at making it easier and easier for folks. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity there from a kind of AI and, and technology standpoint. I mean, some of the work you do in robotics, Peter, I think we'll see those things be deployed in places like manufacturing and places where, you know, it's not such a vulnerable population. And then as we see the successes with the ability to, you know, grasp well and know when we're grasping too hard or too lightly, as, as we see those successes in safer environments, we'll come to places where like elder care, if there was a robot that could help folks go to the bathroom independently, that would be amazing. And it would take so much off. Like, I think I see a world where, you know, loved ones can increasingly do the more fun, pleasant work and less of the butt wiping and stuff like that. Um, and so I, I think that there is, that world seems like clearly feasible and it's just a matter of time and engineering effort and figuring out the business models and proving successes in certain industries and then bringing them to others. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And then I think just through, you know, Zoom and some of the remote connectivity technologies, I think we'll figure out ways to also support on the companionship side where families, if you're like a husband and wife and your husband has Alzheimer's and you're living alone with them, you can get just totally worn down. And so being able to be, you know, a son or a nephew and able to still spend meaningful time with somebody with Alzheimer's to help kind of cover a shift and just be with them in a meaningful way remotely. I think those things will keep making progress and maybe there's some cool stuff from the VR standpoint where, yeah, you know, it's surprising actually that folks with Alzheimer's, they can use stuff like that. And it's funny, like not to go on a little rant here, but folks with Alzheimer's a lot of times are really good at covering that they have Alzheimer's. Um, they're really good at like, still having a normal conversation and within one conversation, you don't necessarily realize. Um, and same thing with like, you know, we'll get on video calls and people will just roll with it. You know, they might like, they'll just, oh yeah, I'm talking to a computer. Yeah. That's, this is normal. I'm not, cause I don't want to admit that I don't actually know that this is a normal thing and cause people are embarrassed and whatever. And so they just roll with it. And so I think that, or a lot of times they do, and obviously it depends on the stage and whatever else, but the, I think there's opportunities from the VR standpoint to, you know, people that are isolated to be able to bring connections to them. And there's some very cool companies that are doing cool things there already. And hopefully we see more and more of that. Related to that, I'm curious, actually, George, Alzheimer's affects memory largely, right? And so I wonder to which extent you see any future in terms of somehow using the camera systems in a way that gives people a summary of their day or some, some kind of intelligent yeah. augmentation of, you know, when, when somebody is with them or 
is going to visit them, the kind of intelligence augmentation for the things that maybe they have a hard time retrieving from their memory. If a camera was with them at all times, maybe the AI can retrieve that part of the memory and somehow redisplay it to help yeah. people kind of connect things. I think those are really hard problems. So I think, you know, part of our vision of the company is that we want to be the perception for these folks, right? Um, and that to do that well is a really hard problem. It takes a lot of time. And so we're kind of knocking away, you know, one use case at a time, but that very much is a big part of the vision. The challenge that you see is that if you Google research papers around like using Google Glass to support people with Alzheimer's, you'll see lots of people do things like that, but it ends up in the research setting being very toy problems of like, oh, I can, you know, so kind of low tech solutions people will use is I'll go put sticky notes on the cabinets, right? So instead of needing to go open up each cabinet, I have like, oh, this one is clearly labeled that it has the cereal in it. This one has bowls in it. And so even if I don't remember, I can pretty clearly see. But then what you see is that as time passes, those solutions stop helping. Um, and so what you really want is a technology that can also grow with the individual. So recognize as their needs are changing and then still be able to be um, like a virtual assistant. And I, I think there's definitely opportunities for that, but it's so, it feels very science fiction-y and it feels in the sense that like there are toy problems that can make it look really good and flashy or whatever, but there are so many needs when you think about how hard of a problem that really is. And, you know, people can get frustrated easily and things like that. So setting the appropriate expectations about what works and what doesn't. But I think that was actually the UK does a grand challenge every year. And I believe their grand challenge is specifically on like virtual assistants for people with Alzheimer's that can use machine learning to grow with them over time. So definitely people investing a lot of money in it. I think Bill Gates might be part of that. I'm not sure. I know he invests a lot of money in Alzheimer's solutions. So I, I definitely think we'll get there, but I think it comes with how do you collect that data at scale to know what it's the meaningful stuff to be supporting with. And I think you start with specific use cases, show a lot of value around them, and then you proliferate out from there. Now, if we kind of zoom out for a moment and think about the future of healthcare more generally, I'm curious if, if you have some thoughts on that, the combination of AI and healthcare and beyond Alzheimer's and dementia, just kind of big, big picture. And any thoughts on where you see other opportunities for people to make big contributions and improve lives? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you've spent a lot of time thinking about this as well. So I'd love to actually hear your, your thoughts too. I guess in two broad buckets, I see the opportunity to push the standard of care, to do things that a human would not be able to do. And then I see the opportunity to just reduce workload on humans. So I think radiology is a classic example of like, there's a lot of x-rays that an AI algorithm can look at and doesn't actually need a human to look at to understand. And then there's an area in the middle that hey, we're not exactly sure, let's hand it off to a human expert and have them figure it out. And then if you have a workflow that looks like that over time, you get better and better and that decision boundary gets you know more and more clear. Obviously, you still need to balance it with that you're training on past data and so there's shifts in your underlying data and whatever else, you know, you need to be aware of those things. But I think we definitely see as, particularly with an aging population, as there are fewer and fewer young people available to care for the older folks, Things that just let people be more efficient and only respond, you know, at times of uncertainty, I think I see as one big bucket. For context there, by the way, with respect to the aging population, one of the statistics I've heard is that in 2015, there were seven potential caregivers for every person over 80. By 2030, there will only be four. So like 
that's not a long time. And yeah, we just have so few relatively young people to support all the older folks. So how do we make them more efficient? And then in time, how do you actually do yeah, superhuman level tasks where a human actually can't tell and the AI can to a better degree or whatever else? One of my personal dreams remains that, you know, robots could help people to live independently much longer. Once it becomes too tiring to, let's say, cook every day, too tiring to clean up every day. If a robot could do that, then maybe you could keep living at home. You could keep hosting your children, your grandchildren at the house you've always lived in because maintaining upkeep of the house is and, and just the day-to-day activities are not a burden. They're taken care of for you. And so you can yeah. keep your your place that you've had for so long and, and independence, which, I mean, some statistics I've seen in the past have shown that once people feel they lost their independence, it often leads to mentally a, a very big downward spiral. A lot of the services that have come out that enable convenience for folks. So, you know, San Francisco is effectively assisted living for like 20 year olds <laughs> where like you can get rides wherever you want, you can get food delivered, whatever. And so a lot of these like things that have come out for, from a convenience standpoint, Alexa, for instance, are really meaningful for the people that aren't getting them for convenience. It's actually filling a need for them, right? Like, so Alexa being able to change channels for, you know, folks with disabilities that, you know, might not otherwise be able to interact with a remote easily or whatever else. Um, or it's just really hard for them to get up and go get the remote. Yeah, expanding access and things like that. I, I think we're going to see, you know, when I was hearing you talk about like meal prep, for instance, it's like, oh yeah, that's definitely going to start with like not explicitly designed for older adults. It's going to start with people who are, just don't want to cook and buy, are willing to pay up for something for convenience. And then costs will come down and things will get more and more seamless. And then it's going to do a lot of good for the population that it's not just about convenience, it's about independence and being able to live a meaningful life. So I love your point there. No, your company is doing well. It's helping people in the world. You have multiple, you know, successful fundraising rounds and the system is being adopted more and more widely. And so I got to imagine that you also start getting questions from budding entrepreneurs for advice. Like what, what is some advice, some lessons learned for people who want to start their own companies? Yeah, um, I'm sure you get this as well. I'm going to want to hear your answer to this after. I think mine is probably like, you should work on something that you're willing to work on even when it's really hard. Work on something that you care a lot about um, where you're not going to push through some of the wall. I mean, I think there's so many, if you Google camera fall detection, you'll see papers going back 30 years, right? But you never saw a company really do it at, at scale and do it well. And there's a lot of challenges that are going to come up and it's not obviously just the technology. It's going to be all sorts of you know, how do you figure out what the go-to-market motion looks like and what's your growth model? You know, there was a time when I was our only on-site support. So we were running our first studies to prove efficacy and we had no money. And I was spending every Sunday driving all over the Bay Area and to Sacramento to just fix cameras that were down. And I remember pulling, like being just so exhausted that I pulled into a community at like 7 a.m. and just like cried in my car. <laughs> I was so tired. If you're in it just for the you know money or whatever else, there's going to be times that feel great. And there's going to be times where you're like, forget this. Like there are easier ways to, to make money. And I kind of feel like you should, you know, we glorify entrepreneurs a lot in our culture, but I feel like it almost has to be, I don't know, maybe it's to work on the type of company we build, but it almost has to be a calling where it's like, I really could not have done anything else. Like I needed to do this. Um, and if I was 
going and working at you know a tech company or whatever on something else i just would not i would have been bored and not found fulfillment and this is something that i just like needed in my bones to at least try say like recognize how hard the path can be and that i think the big successes come from people that are going to push through whatever wall gets put up in front of them and then probably you know i was just talking to somebody else about this as you're fundraising and hiring people and things like that don't be greedy don't get caught up in like trying to keep the biggest piece of the pie focus on just making a really big pie and like rewarding the people around you giving like meaningful amounts of equity to your employees and your co-founders and you know don't get greedy with your fundraisers raise more than you think you'll need because guess what covid's going to hit and you'll be very happy you did you know whatever else so if you you know think first and foremost about the long-term success and what is the best thing for the business and you know everything else will come from there if you really are very committed to you know this thing is my baby and i would feel you know just upset I guess I don't have children, so I probably can't make that statement, but I feel like the success of the company is my success and the company comes first and foremost. And, you know, I've cut my own pay three times when it was needed, right? Before I knew if we had salary for other people and you should be, you know, very ready to, and it's one thing to say, you know, I think one of my surprises is that it takes a long time, you know, everything takes longer than you think it will. And so you might feel like that might be true for you right now, but think about where you'll be seven years from now. Um, and if you'll be wanting to have kids at that time and, have other other people that you want to put first. I think you know that's my at least personal experience from being a starting a company with no name, first time founder in a space that's crazy hard and whatever else. I don't know. What are your thoughts there? Well, the first thing on my mind when you said you're going to ask the question back to me was actually the first thing you said, which is building a company takes a lot of work for a very long time. And so, I mean, certainly periodically there is an almost overnight success, meaning it only takes a few years to, to have clear success. But the norm is that it takes seven to 10 years to emerge as a truly successful company, right? And that's a long time. And so, yeah, really wanting to build what you're setting out to build is, is key or it, you're just going to you know start doing something else, especially there's so many job opportunities out there that something else could be much lighter on you could be you know paying you better <laughs> i mean yeah. a very successful company ultimately will likely pay you more than whatever you could have done by going work somewhere else but even with a medium successful company often you know if you climb the corporate ladder at a big company you you might even match it if you cleverly climb the ladder and, and do well so i think you really need to want to build what you're setting out to build or it's just it's just going to be impossible to stick with it. I think that's so well put because, yeah, don't get me wrong. Like definitely, especially in the early days, had those nagging thoughts of like, oh, friends from Berkeley going and getting like crazy salaries at tech companies and whatever. And, and I think that's OK, right? Like I, I think be honest with yourself, like it is definitely OK to just like do work. And it definitely can be, you know, fulfilling, um, make a good salary and, you know, prioritize things in your life that you care about, like, you know, your significant other and time for travel and things like that because building the company is a very high risk high reward endeavor like most companies fail and you don't necessarily hear about them and i think it's okay to be you know honest with yourself about you know where your priorities are in life yeah and then the other thing that would come to to my mind which you kind of alluded to also is to just have a really good team that you're going to be spending a lot of time together and you want to just have a great team where it's, it's really fun to work together and also you know that you're all you know super driven and 
good at what you're supposed to do at the company so you have a real chance of succeeding. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think people where we found a lot of success, I think about our chief operating officer, Shirley, or our uh, chief strategy officer, Tom. I think where I found a lot of success is people that share the same values, but actually think quite differently. So like our why about working on something is the same, but how we approach it and the perspectives we come from and what we prioritize is quite different and fills a gap for me. So if I'm a technology person, I really like to think about products, for instance, having people that the why is the same. So we, to your point, we really like spending time around each other. And we're in it for the same reason. And we know we're going to push super hard and have each other's backs and all of that. But they're just going to think about like customers and sales and go to market and things that are so important for a business to be successful. Um, or even you can both be thinking about product. You know, I was just having a conversation with Shirley, our CEO this morning about product opportunities. And we just approach it in such a different way that both paths are clearly extremely valuable, but I'm thinking really from an AI standpoint and she's really thinking from like a workflow standpoint. And both of those are so important. Um, so yeah, finding people that, I mean, to the value of diversity and inclusion and all of that, I think all the statistics are known, but I came to really see that in working on teams like that, where having people that are there for the same reason and share values, but think totally differently from you, you've uncovered so many blind spots and opportunities you wouldn't have thought about or prioritized. And yeah, it's been a fun ride so far. I love that uh, that lesson there. George, thank you. It is so yeah. great to have you on. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, me as well, Peter. Thanks for having me on.